Really, really cool. I want to tell you a quick story before we get stuck in. Friday, the 11th of March, 2011, in Japan, there was a 9.1 magnitude earthquake. You might have seen it in the news if you were uh, looking at the news at that stage in 2011. It was the most powerful earthquake in Japan's history, putting our little tremor to shame last week. But it was 9.1 on the Richter scale. It, was, it sent off 132 feet tall tsunami waves that reached up to six miles inland, killing 15,000 people instantly, and there were thousands upon thousands that were reported missing and displaced. And on the back of this earthquake, on the back of the tsunami, there was another problem, was it did off the nuclear reactors. And so they had this nuclear earthquake tsunami disaster that just ravaged the city and ravaged the nation and got the world's attention. And uh, while everyone was talking about this, then the after effects of this devastating uh, moment, there's this man that you may or may not know. His, his name, his last name is Sakamoto, a Japanese uh, incredible composer and pianist. Who is, well, he's like a national treasure in Japan because he's won Golden Globes. If you ever watched the movie The Revenant with Leonardo DiCaprio, he wrote the soundtrack and played on it. So just this incredible guy, this musician. And uh, because of his, this disaster and his, his, his limelight, they played a uh, Netflix documentary. So you can go find this as well. That's where I get all my information from these days, you know? Uh, Wikipedia and Netflix. There we go. But uh, this, this incredible man, this incredible story, uh, and the story, if you're watching the film, is of him getting on the bus just in the, the aftermath of this tragedy. Because there came a story in the, in the midst of this, the, the devastation of human life and the, the city that had grown economically to a halt and, uh, and the pain and chaos, was that there's this incredible story, this small narrative that just grabbed the heart of the world of a grand piano that had survived the tsunami and it floated and landed out, like miles and miles out of the city where everything else around it had been destroyed. There's this grand piano that was waterlogged, bent out of shape, but busted up, but now it landed miles away and was at a, a local musical conservatory and rescued this grand piano. And, and Sakamoto heard that this was there, so he got on this bus and he drove all the way to find this piano. And this incredible story is he walks into a hall that's empty, there's nothing else in this hall except this. On the stage is this, this piano that's like just barely hanging on for life, it looks like, after this tra crazy journey it's been on. It's warped, it's frayed, and he steps on stage. And, uh, and you know, this incredible thing that he says was that they're all so excited that he'd come and they said, but why have you come here? And what are you coming to do, Sakamoto? He says, as he flexed his fingers, he says, I want to hear the noise that will come from this piano. And then everyone's like, no, no, but it's out of tune, it's frayed, it's warped. He says, I want to hear the sound it makes. And that, as I saw that story, I've been reminded, I think, what God has doing this season. I don't want to liken what we've been through to the natural disasters of Japan in 2011, but I really do, in a sense, this year, everything has been shaken for people. Financially, emotionally, relationally, everything has been shaken. It feels like one thing after another. It felt just like it was almost, if I can stretch the metaphor, earthquake, tsunami, nuclear, just, it felt like a wave upon wave of something, another thing thrown at us. But I want to say, by the grace of God, you and us together have survived. Some are afraid, walked, beaten, but we have survived. And with the church of Jesus Christ is still here. It's still here. And I want to tell you that I believe that the stage of history is set and the great composer, God himself, is sitting down in a afraid, walked church and saying, I've come to hear what sounds like. And I believe that maybe we've been beaten, maybe we're looking a bit bruised, but I believe the greatest sound is about to come out of the church than ever before. And I'm so excited because the composer with his, on his fingers will make the music sing.
So with that as a, a backdrop, I want to tell you the scripture that's been burning my, in my own heart, my own personal journey, if that's okay, let you into that world a little bit today. Galatians 6 verse 9. I'll be on the screen behind me, but it's a, a one-hit wonder, this incredible verse that is just so powerful. And it comes on the backdrop of six amazing chapters, but as a standalone verse as well, it's incredible. But it starts off like this, it says, But let's not grow weary in doing good, for at the proper time, the right time, the appointed time, in due season, we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Yeah. I want to just very quickly tell you, I love that word, but I cannot read it without shouting, but because when you see the word, the English language is amazing. When you see the word, but it means something has come before. And most often in this context, something negative has come before. And the Apostle Paul in the Galatian context, he's been going at ends about and at pains to tell them of the, 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 the dangers of going after legalism. And then in chapter 6, he's just the verses before, he's talking about the dangers of sowing into the flesh and giving into your own small desires and living for small things. But he says this word, but, and it's a transition word. And I want to give that word to you as a gift, a transition gift for your life right now. But, I love it. You're never going to be able to scream scripture again without shouting, but! <laughs> because I want to tell you, maybe 2020 has come in waves and finances, just so you're in tatters. Maybe it's come in waves and you feel emotionally depleted. Just even getting it, like, someone says, how are you doing? You're like, oh, I'm so glad I've got a mask on. Because I just, I don't know. Maybe your workspace is in, is in disarray, your relationships are strained. I want to say, yes, 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 but! But! Today I want to tell you, if you feel like your back is against the wall, your tank is empty, and the enemy just feels like it keeps coming like a tidal wave, today I want to give you a bullet in the chamber. Amen. An arrow in your quiver. A, a, a knife put in the, in the sheath, in the back place. They just, so when you face that moment where you don't have any more strength to go on, maybe you're in that place right now, or maybe it's coming. Because can I tell you, I hate to tell you, as I read the Bible, you ain't seen nothing yet. I don't believe that we're on a trajectory where things are going to get better. Think, uh, things are going to get easier. I know in Jesus, things get better in Him. But He doesn't say they get easier. But I want to give you something, a weapon that, that I believe if you know this, you understand, I've been putting this deep in my fragile, wicked heart that too often goes after my own emotions, that too often gets fearful, if I'm honest. And I've been putting this but in my heart so that we are able to stand. So I want to tell you, I want to pray. And we're going to get stuck in. Father, I pray today, would you do deep works with us as a people? Yeah. Frayed, warped, beaten, bruised, but still here. Still standing. That means you're not finished with us yet. And I thank you, God, that your word would come to us and you would say, But let us not grow weary. Let us not grow tired. Let us not uh, grow faint in doing good. For at the proper time, at just the right time, at the appointed time, in due season, we will reap our harvest. If we do not give up. Put this deep in our hearts today so that we'll be able to stand and stand and stand and stand until the harvest comes. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So we are doing social distancing, but we're still able to do these charismatic things. Why don't you tell your neighbor, if they're far from you, shout in your tell them, I will not give up. I will not give up. Maybe say to you've also got really beautiful eyes. That's all we've got to go on these days. But to help us navigate this, I've been stuck in the book of 2 Kings, and 2 Kings chapter 3 has this incredible narrative. And for time's sake, I won't read it, but you need to go read it. It is beautiful. It's a crazy story. 
I, I love the Word of God, but from verse 9 to 25, there's this narrative, and I want to set it up briefly to help us lay hold of this verse in Galatians 6 verse 9. I'll tie them together at the end. But we find the story that starts off with these three kings. The first king is the, and they'll be behind me as well, the king of Judah, his name is Jehoshaphat. And uh, if you look at the broad spectrum of his life, he had some ups and downs, but in general uh, reading of his life, he was a good king. A good guy. He's one of the good guys. If this was a pantomime, I'll say, King Jehoshaphat. And he'll go, yay! He's a good guy. Then we've got, along with him, King of Israel, Jehoram. And uh, this guy was the bad guy. Boo. Why? He was the son of Jezebel and Ahab. And if you've got any biblical knowledge, Jezebel and Ahab were rotters. They were bad apples. And they have a son who doesn't, hasn't fallen too far from the tree. He's a wicked guy and wicked to the core. And we find the third guy in this narrative is a man named the King of Edom. They don't even tell us his name. And scholars say two reasons why. Number one, they don't tell us his name because it's actually probably just a temporary appointment in a line of really bad guys from Eden. But Eden was this line of, of wickedness, a place that was a place despised but led to, to chaos in the biblical narrative. And in the sense of, they, don't want to, they say the biblical writers don't even want to give him credence by naming him. So right here, these three kings, you've got the good, the bad, and the ugly. <laughs> it's just all down on bad right here. And these three kings have come together, and they, they seem to have got nothing in common, but they've got a common enemy, the, tri- the, the, the land of Moab. And they want to go, they want to defeat Moab, because you know, you know life is bad when the, the bad and the ugly are teaming up with the good to go after really, really, really bad. So we'll go after that guy. And they team up, and they, they're going together, and they call their armies, this is, for time's sake, this, this incredible story of three nations and their armies all travel into the desert to go and take on Moab. Moab is this massive enemy that needs three warring kingdoms to come against them to try and take him down. And the, the story tells us that they walk for seven days towards Moab, towards this fight. But at the end of seven days, they get there, they realize they're not even going to get to the fight because they've run out of water. Bad planning. I don't, know, I don't know what it is, but they've got there and suddenly their resources have run dry already and, and everyone's depressed and feels like the army's like, we can't, we can't fight them, we can't even feed ourselves, we can't even drink, we are, our throats are parched. And I love in the Bible, don't want to read too heavily into things, but there is a general sense in the scriptures, whenever uh, the, the authors write out these details, we want to take heed of them, he says, after seven days, seven days of walking, and then the number in, 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 in the biblical literature, seven often means completeness. Fulfillment or covenant. When, when, they, when they mention these things, so for example, in, in a couple of chapters later, 2 Kings 5, the, Elisha tells Naaman, he says to him, there's leprosy, go and dip yourself in the, the river seven times. And it's after, you can imagine, does it one, two, three, four, five, six times, nothing happens. But on the seventh time, that's the moment the healing comes. It's just some of the way God works. And, and in the story of Joshua and Jericho, it says, walk around the city seven times. You imagine the sixth time, you go, it's, it's Joshua lost it. But on the seventh time, it came down. We don't we keep going and get to Jesus on the cross. He has seven last sayings. And the sixth one says, I thirst. But the seventh one, we thank God he didn't stop at that one. The seventh one says, it is finished. He declares that it wasn't just up to that point, but actually he went the whole way and took our sin, our shame, everything. He declared, Tetelestai, it is done on our behalf. It's a number of completeness. And I think in some reason, ways we understand, number seven is basically indicating at just the right time, at the appointed time, at the proper time, at the God-appointed time. That's what the number seven is holding us to here. But we find that they say they're thirsty. And I love the fact they say they're thirsty because when they're thirsty, their backs are up against the wall. 
one thing that I'm coming to understand about God is that I, I think the one thing I love about trial, the one thing I love about the season, is it reveals our need for God. Yeah. Trial reveals our need for God, but let me say it this way. Obedience determines if we'll feed from God. Everyone is in need of God now. Trial and thirst reveal our need for God, but only obedience shows who will feed from Him and feed from that source. You see, we see in the story, if you go read it, verse 10 and verse 11, we've got these contrasting responses. The king of Israel, Jehoram, the son, the son of, uh, of Jezebel and Ahab, the bad, ooh, he says as he freaks out, he says, what shall we do? The Lord has brought the three of us here to be defeated by Moab. But the first option is you, you know, when your thirst comes and you're hungry, your back's against the wall, you can submit to the enemy. Or secondly, verse 11, Jehoshaphat says this, but King Jehoshaphat asks, is there no prophet of the Lord with us? If there is, we can ask the Lord what to do through him. You can submit to the enemy, or you can search for the king. Simple, simple. In this season, you've got two choices. Submit to the enemy, lay down and play dead, or search for the king. Thirst reveals our need for God, but obedience shows you will feed from him. You see, I want to say this, that the biggest danger in this season, for my own self, for you, is... When our heart is lukewarm, this is the biggest danger is when our heart is lukewarm or apathetic towards our thirst. That's the biggest danger. Not protesting, not wild living. I, I think the biggest danger is I read the narrative of scripture, is when our hearts are lukewarm or even apathetic. I, I need God, but I'm not going to do anything about it. It's like a man named Pharaoh in the book of Exodus, when Moses comes to him and says, Hey, plagues are going to rain down on you. Literally, the first one says, Frogs are coming. Can you imagine? Frogs are pouring in the door. Pouring in. Frogs are over his family. It's like just his wife is going, What are you doing, Pharaoh? Why are you letting these guys? Frogs coming here. Frogs are in their soup. Frogs are in their meals. Frogs are in their bathroom. They go to the loo. This is the frogs are everywhere. It's frogs are everywhere. And Pharaoh says, Make it stop. And Moses says, Let me know when I must do it. And Pharaoh says, Maybe tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> Something is wrong. And I think there's a lot of fear in all of us. When actually our world is falling apart and then God's saying, reach out to me. We're like, I need you, God. But maybe tomorrow. <laughs> you see, the story continues. They say, it's surely there's a prophet. So they go, yes, there actually is a prophet in this area that we can reach out to. And it's a man named Elisha. And actually, Elisha, they only know Elisha because of his protege, Elijah, who's no more. But they say, we know Elijah. And I can imagine Jehoshaphat, so I can read into the text, Jehoshaphat's head spinning. He goes, I know Elijah. That guy was the guy, the prophet who always used to make, he was, he was renowned for making rain coming, food, you know, the, the ravens feed him. This guy, if we ever need somebody who can make something come out of nothing, somebody aligned with Elijah, let's go there. We need thirst. I'm sure Elisha learned to think or two. He, maybe he can make rain. The rainmaker, let's go there. So they go there, and I love Elisha. I love the Bible because, you know, we often think that uh, the prophets or the men of God, the women of God, are, are these wonderful, petite, beautiful, bless you, son, people. <laughs> Not the prophets I read. Elisha is arrogant and offensive. <laughs> he literally insults them. He says to them, why do you come here? Go to your prophets. Why do you come looking to me? I'm, 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 not, I'm not on the clock today, boys. You go to your prophets. Then he goes on, he even says this, he says to the three of them, he says, I wouldn't even bother with you, king of Edom, and you, king of Israel, if it wasn't for Jehoshaphat. This is a prophet speaking to kings with massive armies, saying, I don't even have time for you two O's. 
I'll only speak to you because of this guy. It's a powerful thing. It's a powerful thing. Interesting story. But it's an incredible story. Says that he's, I can just so when you read the text, you can just read it. But I can imagine he's a bit riled up. He's riled up with these wicked men coming to him. Now you need God. Yeah, sure. Where were you when the times were good? Now you're coming to God. Ugh. He's frustrated. But then he does this incredible thing. He says, bring me the harp. Bring me the harp. You know? Because he says, actually, I, I need to prophesy, but I, I can't rely on you guys to create the environment. My environment is not conducive for the Word of God to come, so I'm going to have to be able to find this, the Word of God for myself. Now, I want to say that, actually, I think this season, the Church of Jesus Christ are going to be true Church of Jesus Christ. The people are going to survive and thrive. The people don't know how to find the Word of God for themselves. For too long, we've been waiting for, Prophet, tell us what's going to happen. Preacher, tell us the Word. Now there's a place for the prophets, a place for the preachers, a place for that, but they were never there to be the mediator between you and God. Bring me the harpist. Kenneth, come on. Bring me the harpist. You see, we have to learn how to access the presence of God even in the midst of the good, the bad, and the ugly. Verse 15. It's incredible. The transition. The harpist began to play. It says, the harpist began to play and says, the power of the Lord came upon Elisha. The power of the Lord came upon Elisha. And then he says this, this is what the Lord says. If you are a bit more old school and King James Version says, thus saith the Lord. I like that version better. It just sounds much more like Bible. Thus saith the Lord. And if we pause there before reading any more of the text, can you imagine the three prophets? They're like, they're like, he's the harpist is playing, everything turned out. Ooh, that's cool. Here he goes. Look at him go. Look at the prophet. There he is. He's like, the word of power came upon him. He's like, here I go. They're thirsty. They're ready. Like, Give us the prophet. Give us the word. What's going to happen? And they've got expectation. They're going, he's going to call out rain now. He's going to just like, water's going to just gush through from somewhere. We're going to thirst. And he's going to help us take on the Moabites. Expectation versus reality. This is what the Lord says. That saith the Lord, dig this valley full of ditches. They're like, no, we wanted water and you've given us work. Is there another prophet we can go to? Dig this valley full of ditches. Basically in the gate translation says, get your shovel boys and start digging. This is profound thing. I imagine this, that conversation going down. Can you imagine the kings leaving that place, going to their tired, worn out, weary armies who have sent their kings and going, our kings are going to make a way for us. They're going to come back with some equivalent watered bottles or they come back with some, a six pack of Cokes or something. And the kings come back going, hey guys, how's everyone doing? Very thirsty. Cool. We need to do some more work. We have to dig holes. What? Seven days walking in the desert. We're tired, we're burnt out, we're done. And we have to dig holes. Can you imagine that conversation? Awkward. But I want to tell you that I just believe that this is what the Lord said to them. This is what the Lord is saying to us, Life Change Milton, to me. Thus saith the Lord, dig ditches. Dig ditches. Let me help us understand what I mean by that. Today I want to give us three ingredients, very briefly, to digging ditches that God can fill. How do we dig ditches that God can fill? Number one, precision. He says this, make this valley full of ditches. He tells them where to do it. Make this valley, where you stand right now. I want to tell you three things about precision. We have to dig where we are. We have to dig where we're told. And then we have to dig where we want to see breakthrough. 
me unfold that. Take where you are, it says in the valley. Another word, euphemism you could use there, you could have, take here in the low point, take here in your lowest, your breaking point, take here in your weakness, take here in your need, take here in your limitation. Maybe you're saying today, my emotions are shot, my nerves are frayed, I, 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 just, I, I don't know, what you, I can't do anything, I feel like I'm exhausted, I'm tired. I want to tell you, maybe you're saying, okay, give me that word, give me a word of thought, momentum, when this year is done. When the calendar turns to 2021, then I'll be ready. When the economy takes the turn, when my health is back, when I get over my addiction, when the business has an upturn, then I'll respond to this. No, no. He says, dig where you are right now, in the, in your, in the valley. In that space where you are. Now, I, I want to remind us that we don't need a faith that is loud. We just need a faith that is deep. And too many of us, I wanted to say this, get off Facebook and get into the field. Too many of us are fighting convictions and battles and, and things on Facebook and putting statuses and crafting when actually that's not winning us, getting us any rain, digging ditches does. We don't need a faith that's loud, we just need a faith that's deep. Dig where you are, dig where you're told. I love the fact he says, the prophet says, you're going to dig here. They could go, okay, but our armies are there, we'll dig there. No, no, you go, call them here, dig here in the valley. Dig in the space. Dig where God has called you. Dig in your marriage. Dig ditches in your parenting. Dig ditches in your ministry. Dig ditches in your business. Maybe you're not seeing the water because you haven't dug the ditch. Maybe you're not seeing the breakthrough because you haven't dug, broken the earth. Let me say it this way. Dig where you want to see breakthrough. I simply, as simply as I can put, if after so long, I've, you know, you pray for people and they're saying, we're longing for kids. Can I tell you, here's one way I've seen God work. Serve in the kids ministry. Dig where you want to see breakthrough. You want a godly spouse? Serve a church, serve his bride. He'll give you, he'll give you a bride for you. You want breakthrough in your finances? Start and continue a habit of financial giving. I want you to give me breakthrough, God. He says, dig ditches. No, but what do you mean? A tenth of every month? Every month. I've seen nothing come of that. Dig ditches. I'll bring the water. You want leadership? Learn to submit and honor the leaders God has given you. Ah, I've only had another boss. Dig ditches. Dig ditches. It takes precision. That's where we're going to dig. See, it takes potency. You see, I'm not a, I'm not a biology major. And as you can see, my build and my, my complexion, I'm not a man of the field. But what I have realized, to dig a ditch requires a little muscle. Requires a little bit of a power. And here's my thought here, is the breakthrough only comes when there is a breaking. Pick up a shovel. You can push around the dirt on the top. You can move it around or you have to break the soil. You have to push that into the soil, dig it out. And I believe that as we look at scripture, the breaking needs to come. And I've learned this, I think we've learned this, but I think it has to, not broken by, not broken by the enemy or circumstances, but broken by him. Breaking of my pride, breaking of my dreams, breaking of my ambition, breaking of my resources. You see, Jesus stands before a crowd of 5,000. What if we got five loaves, two fish? What do we do? How are we going to do it? Bring it to me, he says. He gave thanks and then he broke it. And then he handed it to the people. The multiplication came only in the breaking. Yeah, only was brought up to God. Would you, would you break? I'm breaking this yet. And I, and I believe that no better place does this happen. I believe is what a weapon God is giving the church like never before. The weapon called prayer. Yeah. Yeah. Prayer. 
You see, the only place that power comes before prayer is in the dictionary. <laughs> the only place power comes before prayer is in the dictionary. For some reason. And prayer is the greatest illustration of what digging a ditch does. It looks like. Because it looks menial. Prayer looks as hard work. And you don't really know what the results are. But prayer is the best form of digging a ditch. God, I'm trusting you. You bring the water. You see, I've, I've realized that actually a lot of my faith is, I, I'm in, in, the, in the later in the New Testament, Paul writes this line, he says, they have a form of godliness, but they deny its power. And I've realized that a lot of Christ, Western Christian, Christianese, Christianity is forms of godliness, looking like church, but there's no real power. There's no real power there. And I want to tell you, help us with ditch digging prayer. Ditch digging prayer. Careful here. Ditch digging prayer looks like, number one, it's desperate. It's not dignified. It's not verbose. It's not clear. You know, thus saith the Lord. The Lord has granted thine wisdom to come. Now, <laughs> wonderful if you can pray like that. But ditch digging prayer is desperate. It's when your kid is on the hospital bed and you don't know what to do. That's what prayer looks like. There's the story of Elisha. Elisha flinging himself over the body of a dead boy, flinging over, crawling out and breathing into him. And I look at that image and I go, that's what, what ditch, ditch digging prayer looks like. Desperate. It's desperate. It's not, it's not trying to be put together. You know, digging a ditch is dirty. It's dirty work. It's not this clean, clear cut, neat and tidy. It's actually pressing. It's desperate. It's daring. I really believe that we'll get to heaven and God will say, your prayers were so small. They were so embarrassing. I've been in prayer meetings and I, I remember the prayer meetings that my first few prayer meetings I ever went to as a young boy, I went there and we spent hours in prayer meetings praying for people's ailments and my sore toe and my little nephew down there. And God loves those things. But I felt God saying, I've got the resources of heaven. Pray for revival. Pray for big things. Pray for the earth to be shaken. Pray for God to use me in my day. Rain down his kingdom. Daring prayers. That's what ditch-digging prayers are. Apprehend the God of the universe. They're desperate, they're daring, they're dedicated. I think of my mom, who's worn a hole, a ditch in the carpet of my home, praying for us. You know those, those ladies? You know those people who pray and they walk up and down, and they walk up and down, you can see a bit of a groove. It's not a groove in the carpet, it's a, it's a ditch that they've been waging, putting in there so God can fill I tell you, I love the, the, I believe there's an attitude he's to grab hold of, I will not let go of you until you bless me, God. I'm going to lay hold of you. And it might not be tomorrow, it might not be next week, not about me next year, but I'm going to keep digging ditches. I'm going to be keep digging ditches. You know what I mean? Potency. Thirdly is persistence. You see, he says this, make this valley full of ditches. You mean like one per nation? Two, how many, how many of does full mean? No, full. Every bit of ground, dig a hole. Pick up the shovel, break the ground, toss the turf, repeat. Pick up a shovel, break the ground, toss the turf, repeat. Pick up a shovel, break the ground, toss the earth, repeat. Pick up a shovel, break the earth, toss the ground, repeat. This is what they did all day. Make this valley full of ditches after 30, 40, they go, surely this is enough. Hey, the prophet, he's not even coming out to check. Surely we can, no, no, make this valley full of ditches. Persistence. 
I want to tell you today, how much water is God going to send? How many ditches are you going to dig? And I want to tell you, I'm not putting my shovel down for nothing. There's going to become a new resolve in my heart. I don't know about you, but as for me and my house, and as for me and Life Jane Milton, we are not putting our shovels down. We are not putting our shovels down. No matter what comes our way, offended, I'm not putting it down. I'm digging ditches. Hurt, I'm not putting my shovel down. I'm tired, I'm not putting my shovel down. I'm bankrupt, I'm not putting my shovel down. I'm frustrated, I'm not putting my shovel down. Why? Because God only works. This is the way God works. Welcome to Christianity 101. He fills what we dig. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness shall be filled. You don't believe me? Read the very next chapter. Elisha puts this practice again into black place. There's a widow who's got nothing left. And he says, go and borrow as many jars as you can. Put them out and keep pouring the oil. Those will all be filled. And it says, the oil stopped when there's no more jars to be filled. He filled what we dig. So I want to say to you, I don't know who this is for, but don't give up on your kids. Don't give up on your marriage. Don't give up on your giving. Don't give up on your ministry. Don't give up on your calling. Don't give up on your church. This is what God says. And I really believe this, that persistence breaks the resistance. I say it every time it rhymes, so it must be true. But there is depth to it. Persistence breaks the resistance. There's so many illustrations I can go for here, but let me go for Jesus Christ himself. He's in the desert for 40 days and the enemy comes. The enemy comes and tempts him. The enemy comes and torments him there. In the desert, three times. Big temptations. But at the end of that, it says this, says that actually, Jesus, at the end of the whole, whole narrative, it says that after the, the Satan said, okay, cool, I'm not going to make any headway here. I'll leave him for a more opportune time. Because persistence held the line, held the line, and he said, actually, I'm leaving for a while. But here's the incredible thing that I really believe that Jesus, in those 40 days, dug ditches in the desert, and he saw the power in the garden. When the enemy came at a more opportune time, time, it was that moment he said, actually, not my will, but his will be done. I don't want to read too much into it, but I really believe this is what God is saying. This, And, and here's my one of my last little big punches to whoever needs to receive it. Please don't be offended, but take it. The word doesn't say, based on, on your passion. It says, no, persistence. I want to read, 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 take this word back because no one is passionate about digging in a desert. There's no personality test on earth because, ooh. Enneagram or Strength Finder, you love digging in deserts. Oh yes, I do. The hotter the better. No, no one goes, yay! And I really believe millennials and that part of my tribe have hijacked this word. Follow your passion. Can I be dead honest? It's rubbish. It's rubbish. Because can I tell you, when your passion wanes, I don't, oh, you know, they didn't play me in my gifting. They didn't play me on passion. I moved on to the next job, to the next church, to the next marriage, to the next moment. Because my passion died. Don't follow your passion. Follow him. Persistently. Persistently. He'll bring you joy when you follow his purpose. He'll bring you passion when you persistently on his mission. Let me tell you, don't tell Paul in the Gospels, follow your passion, Paul. In Acts 14, he walks into a city, he's preaching the gospel, he is stoked, flogged, dragged out of town, and thinking he was dead, they left him there to die. Paul, do you just read that sentence? I'm going, he's bloodied, he's bruised, stoked. These are not like little pebbles. They've thrown rocks at him. 
had his head bashed in. He probably got broken ribs. He's lying outside the city for preaching the gospel. It says the believers came and surrounded him, strengthened him. Paul got back up and went back into the city. He was not passionately going, yes, I follow my passion. Give me another meeting. Persistence. I'm digging ditches. I'm digging ditches. And can I tell you what's so cool? Is if you understand the text in that city of Iconium, where he went to, he got beaten and all that stuff. It was in that place. Years later, we find out that a man named Timothy was found by Paul. A young man named Timothy would later become his protege, who would lead the church in Ephesus, a massive mega church of the day, and would be the man that Paul would entrust a lot of his ministry to and say, to trust to do faithful me. Timothy would have been a young boy, and if my imagination could serve me correctly, I can imagine Paul going back in there, and actually he's not going, he's going, what am I doing? I'm preaching and beating me. Like the little boy for Timothy is watching. I want to tell you, don't despise your ditches. There's a story that I, I, I've come to love of a preacher in the 1700s. And he goes uh, to preach. He's so fired up. He's passionate. He's going. And he arrives at a church. And he's, got, he's, he's built to preach in the night. This massive auditorium. Um, uh, massive church. And the Lord, he felt the Lord say, from this preach, you're going to see my power go and the nations will be reached. He's like, here we go. And he prayed. He was fired up. He prepped. He thought he had dug his ditches. He said he's ready. He had served all night before, making sure he had, working out the text, making sure the Greek is right, the Hebrew is right, making sure he's going to deliver it with power. They prayed and prayed and prayed over the word, God, would you use it? He arrives, he pumps, ready, ready, and gets to church. And there's seven old ladies scattered across the auditorium. No social distancing, but they won't sit next to each other. And, and in his narrative, he would say this very despondent. Say, Lord, surely, did I hear wrong? But he thought, no, I, I heard right. I'm going to deliver the word. So he dug another ditch, preaching with every fiber inside, preaching what God had put his heart, preaching, preaching, preaching. And uh, the, the seven old ladies were grateful, but nothing really exciting. Gave an altar call, all they bowed their heads, nothing moved in their hearts. They all got up after said, that was great. Do you want some tea? He was discouraged and walked out. What he didn't know, and only came to find out later, was that the organs were so large in those days that they needed somebody small to come and hold and play the pedals at the bottom. There was a small little boy in the organ up at the top who, was, who played the, or held the pedals down, named William Carey, who listened to the whole sermon silently weeping, gave his life to the Lord, and William Carey was that went on from there to take the gospel to Asia and became known as the father of the, the modern father of missions. He took the gospel out. God says, you dig the ditches, I'll bring the rain. You dig the ditches, I'll bring the rain. What I bring it to us as I bring this to close. I've been praying lots and I felt the Lord in the season for life in Milton give me the, the parable of the talents. Not my favorite one, I must be dead honest. It's not like the most exciting one. But you know, if you know anything of it, it's, there's this parable where we're told that there's to some you gave a one talent, two talents, five talents, so, and, and what will you do with it, basically? And the one talent guy buries it, the two talent guy multiplies it, the five talent guy multiplies it, doubles it as well. Well done, good and faithful servants. You can go read the text at home if you need the, the rest of it. But I felt God in, in our season of life at Milton that actually God gave us different sized talents in the different venues we've been in. Some of them are, are, were seemingly in, in the natural arts were one talent venues, or two talent venues, with lots of Obstacles and oh, what, what can you do with that? But and, and we arrived in Milton with the prophetic <coughs> declaration of the enemy saying, No churches thrive in Milton. 
No churches thrive, there's the graveyard. And yet, a whole bunch of people arrived over the last 400 years who call out in Milton Hope with shovels, saying, yeah, we've come to dig in the graveyard. We've come to dig in this graveyard. And I know, I look around this room, of people who've dug in the graveyard, <laughs> digging, proving faithful every week with a one-tenth or a two-tenth venue. If you don't know, setting up early, packing down, problems, cables, this, how, how will we ever have nice worship when the cables don't work, when this thing... Uh, but I felt that we come to this venue here and uh, wow, that's nice. Stuff is set up, but cool, it's, this feels nice, if I'm honest. But I felt the Lord say this to me. He said, this is just a five-ton venue. You need to be faithful with it. This is not the end destination. This is not what you've been here for. Yeah. And I felt the Lord say, Lord, what do, what do you want from us? And I felt him say this, dig ditches. Dig ditches. Dig ditches. You see, we are ripe for revival. Do you know that the earth is ripe for revival? Yeah. It's true. Historically, go look and if you go and explore the, the modern the modern revivals that take place around the world, every single one of them has taken place on the back of tragedy, disaster, famine, plague, persecution. Why? Because people are thirsty. Yeah. They need God. And the church needs to show them what it looks like to feed on them. You know, the stats say that one in this season, one out of every five pastors will quit. Stats say that in this season we've just been through, one out of every five, five churches will quit or close. But! Life chance, do not grow weary. Do not grow weary. I'm not quitting. I'm not laying down my shovel. I'm picking up. You see, if you want to have a three narrative over this whole thing, you've got to want it. Is find the word of God, thirst after him, press into him. You've got to work it, dig ditches. You've got to dig ditches. But then thirdly, you've got to watch it. I love how the narrative finish says, make this valley full of ditches. It says, and then stand back and see. The Lord will fill, make this valley full of water. It's incredible. It says this in verse 17. No, there'll be no wind. There'll be no rain. No net. This is not going to be a natural thing. This is not going to be a result of your ability. But this valley will be filled with water. And if you carry it on reading, he filled it according to their digging. The next morning they wake up, the valley was full with water. There would be no rain. Came from, I don't know where it came from. They were looking to the sky. He said, now I'm coming from a different source. Maybe that's for somebody here. You've been looking for, it's going to come from there. It's going to come from God. No, I've got a resource you don't know of. This incredible story actually finishes with the Moabites waking up seeing the valley full of water and the sun glinting on it, so they think it's a valley full of blood. And they think the three armies have fought against each other and are weaker. So the Moabites go under-resourced and let's go take on those guys. They get there and find the three armies have been, had their thirst requenched, requenched, refreshed, requenched, requenched, and ready for a battle and they get slaughtered, taken down. The Moabites are killed on the back of God's miracle. I hand it to them. And I want to tell you, I believe they couldn't defeat the Moabites until they dug, dug their ditches. God has got... Maybe you think the season's been good, it's been bad, it's been ugly. There's a great battle lying for us, like Jane Milton. A battle that we don't know of yet, but there's great battles. But our weapons are not carnal. Weapons are digging ditches. Yeah. In our marriages. Maybe you're in a place where your marriage is feeling fraught. And you're like, I don't know what to do. Dig ditches. Dig ditches means... Getting up early and serving. Digging ditches means getting up early and praying. Digging ditches means being vulnerable when everything else in you says hold on to that defense. Digging ditches does not look natural like success. Digging ditches means going lower, going deeper, 
This is called alphabet. What's alphabet? Alphabet. 